as we think of those glorious promises of covenant baptism, which we've just rehearsed, we're doing so with the glory of God upon our hearts today. And what a testimony of that glory it is as we turn our attention to the Word of God from Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and then also from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This is God's Word. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we believe this word that has just been read in your presence and in ours, that all of life is to be lived for your glory. Because that is true, would you come now and glorify yourself in the preaching of the word? Would you come and make the glory and splendor and the beauty of who you are so inescapable? in these next few moments, that we would have found ourselves, as it were, sitting under this word, touching upon the glory of heaven itself. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, now awaken us. Through the livingness of this word, pierce us all the way to the heart, that we might be built up, conformed, shaped into image bearers who love to glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Studying these five solas of the Reformation over the last five weeks together has been such an incredible joy for me, and I hope an incredible joy for you. As we have explored together the Reformers' belief that the Scripture alone is the only authority for faith and practice, as we have studied together that faith alone is the only instrumental cause through which salvation can be received. As we studied that grace alone is the only substance, the only source by which we can be saved. As we studied in Christ alone that he through his person is the only one that could ever mediate between God and man. We come now to the calling of which we have all been impressed upon through the power of the Holy Spirit, through His Word this morning, and that is the glory of God alone. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Sing to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord, all of the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His glory among the nations. Not to us, O Lord, oh no, not to us, but to Your name give glory. And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. 
glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Let your light shine before men in such a way so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I pray that you may abound more and more in love, in real knowledge and discernment, that you might approve those things which are excellent, that you might be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory. From cover to cover as the reformers read the word of God, you know what they saw? They saw all of those passages and dozens and scores more that spoke that the life in which we are called indeed, the end for which all of history tilts, is for the glory of Almighty God. The Reformers believed that so strongly that when they gathered in 1643 to write the Westminster Confession of Faith, and after they wrote it and were requested by Parliament to give a teaching guide in which to study it, the Shorter Catechism, they started off the Shorter Catechism with the first and most foremost question that needed to be asked for anyone who wanted to be trained in what it meant to live for God. They asked this question, what is the chief end of man? Very simply, they responded, having scoured the scriptures from cover to cover, and they said there's only one suitable answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him for, forever. No matter who you are here today, God wants you to know that the ultimate aim of your life and the purpose for which you have been designed is the glory of God. There is no other suitable end of which your life can be found satisfied. There is no other suitable end that you can turn towards that will make sense of how it is that you've been formed and shaped. There is no other suitable end that you will find in this life that will bring to you the kind of satisfaction that your heart desires other than the glory of God. So let's glorify God. How about it? Amen. Let's pray. You want more than that? Well, this is unusual. We can't stop there, can we? It's one thing to say and to rehearse just as I did for a couple of minutes with you, the glory of God. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. It's a whole other thing to even understand how to do it. What do we even mean when we talk about living to the glory of God? Doesn't that feel so abstract, so out there, 
so ivory tower, so castle in the sky. What does it really mean in folding laundry to live for the glory of God? What does it mean in cooking dinner to live for the glory of God? Does it even matter in all of the activities of our lives? Or should we just simply abandon those things and simply sit in a sanctuary all day long singing a mighty fortress is our God? For it's in those moments that we feel or sense something of glory. One of the reasons it's very difficult to grasp truly and genuinely what it means to live for the glory of God is we have such a sketchy understanding of what we mean when we use the word glory. The word glory is notoriously difficult to define. Getting our heads around it is a little bit like trying to define the color red. Take a minute to define the color red in your minds. Finding it difficult? Yes, you are. Not because I know your mind, but because red's not something you exactly define. Red is not something you can say a lot about. It's, it's something you have to see. That glory, very similarly, is something you have to see. It's hard to say what it is, but when you see it, you know it. You know, when you see Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night for the very first time and you stand before it and you think to yourself, glory. When you hear the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, as some of you have probably said in performances of, and you have been lifted, as it were, off your seat listening to its crescendo, you have thought to yourself, glory. Glory is watching a high school quarterback with the game on the line throw the touchdown as the clock expires and the crowd instantaneously with no thought thinks and expresses glory. Glory is the appearing of her of a bride on her wedding day as the doors open in the back of the sanctuary and she steps out as the music begins with dad and a hush of awe comes over everybody as they see her glory. Uh, glory is as I paused on Friday, three houses down, in a beautiful little patch of maple trees, as I saw the brilliant reds and gold colored leaves shimmering in the late afternoon sun. And I found myself, as you've probably done, in that late afternoon sun under those glorious colors, seeing the little aura of light. It kind of gathers around them. It's almost magical. It's like something out of Narnia. And I just paused. I just wanted to get into the light. I just wanted to get there, and I just wanted to soak it in. And, and, and the words that I'm trying to give you to describe that experience seem to fall short. But if you had been there with me, you know what you and I would have agreed? Glory is what we would have agreed. Now, let me stop for just a minute and think about that tree. What do I mean when I say the tree is full of glory? Well, I mean that the tree has come to the height of its greatness. I mean that the, the tree's components have come together beautifully in order to reveal its splendor. I mean to say that the tree is demonstrating something of its majesty. 
Whenever we refer to something in its glory, we're referencing the supreme expression of the thing's perfections. The glory for which it was divine, the supreme expression of that thing's perfections is what we do when we gather with old friends uh, uh, around a cup of coffee and we talk about the glory days. The supreme expression of what life was all about, which usually means in some ways we're not in them now. It's a little diminished in the present, but in the past there was glory days, just like that high school football player is going to one day talk about when he no longer plays football. He's going to talk about the glory days. The same is true when we talk about God. Though it's qualitatively different, the same thing is at play. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about His greatness. We're talking about His majesty. We're talking about His beauty. We're talking about His splendor. We say regularly here at Cornerstone as we prepare for worship, we want the Lord Jesus Christ to become, as it were, to our hearts more believable and then we always add more beautiful. Because we believe that it's your heart that's been hardwired to be drawn to that which is beautiful. And if you're going to be drawn to the living of the glory of God, then he's got to become beautiful to you. You've got to glimpse, you've got to see, you've got to live, as it were, under the aura of the maple tree leaves in the late afternoon, but it not be the light merely of color of trees, but it's the light of His glorious grace. It's in that moment that you begin to experience the splendor of divine perfection. Do you see, God is not merely a finite greatness. He is an infinite greatness. He is the source and the substance of all shimmers of greatness that you've ever seen in this life. He is the source and the substance behind them. He is the originating cause for them. You're you're catching, as it were, the, the, the thumbnail clippings of his glory when you see the aspen trees in Colorado in full bloom. You're seeing just the the sketch, as it were, of his uh, immensity when you're looking at that bride coming down uh, the, the, the way to meet her husband on her wedding day. You're looking at something of the greatness of God, but just the the smallest sense of it, as I did yesterday when I saw a perfect loaf of pumpkin bread come out of the oven. And you know the smell that that puts off? It's unbelievable. It's the smell of the divine. It's something glorious. Now, the pumpkin bread is a real and true joy. And it has within itself its own glory. But it's glorious fleeting. The glory that I experienced of that in its taste and its smell yesterday, guess what? This morning is gone from me. It's gone, it passes through, and it's not unless I see within that something of the glory of God without worshiping that thing, but using that thing as a portal through which to give thanks to God. It's only then that I begin to understand the nature for what I've really been made for. I've been made for the glory of God. Now, how can we live in that way? I think that's what Paul is getting at in these two passages. 
In Romans chapter 11 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these two passages different in terms of their theological context. Romans 11, coming on the heels of the magisterial theological work of the Apostle Paul as he has unpacked redemption in all of his glory in the first 11 chapters. He gets to the crescendo before he gets into chapter 12. And he says in verse 33, Oh, how unsearchable are your ways. How inscrutable are your, is your knowledge. You are glorious. Glorious above all, for from you and through you and to you are all things. Meaning to say, everything that has ever existed is from you. Everything that currently exists is sustained by you. And everything in the future will ultimately be absorbed in you. Which means that there's nothing that you've ever come in contact with that is not designed to show God's glory. That's what he's saying. So to God be the glory. Amen. And then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is actually in the weeds of a pretty difficult trial there in Corinth. And he wants them to know that it's not just the crescendo of Handel's Messiah, and it's not just Van Gogh's Starry Night, but it's, it's just what you eat and you drink that can be submitted and used and experienced for the glory of God. Whether it's the highest and glorious theology or whether it's the most basic and fundamental of activities. From the sky all the way to the dirt. The glory of God. The Apostle Paul says surrounds us and hymns us in on every side. So what do we do about this? How do we live this way? Well, I want to give you just couple of things to think about with regards to the glory of God today so that you can hopefully take it home and employ it a little bit on Monday morning. The first thing it means to live the glory of God is this. It means prizing the glory of God above all things. That's the first thing it means. It's not the only thing it means, but living for the glory of God means first prizing the glory of God above all things. Now I said that in a statement a minute ago. We want to live in such a way that we glorify God. But I think it's important to see that very often when we live life, we live life robbing God of his glory rather than engaging life for his glory. Prizing it above all of life. We spend more time, I'm afraid, very often, and I'm just talking about me, and I'm assuming it's going to spill over as something that will resonate with you, that I live so much of my life about me rather than about God, which is at its fundamental core a robbing of God of his glory. And so I struggle to prize God's glory above all things because I prize my glory within the things of the world. Now, how can I see that biblically? Well, I just want to reference two passages with you that are in that same book of Romans that we're in today. Romans chapter 3. You know this by heart, many of you in the room. How is it that we could define sin? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God defines in the book of Romans through the Apostle Paul's sin in relationship to glory. He doesn't merely say it's an impersonal, abstract breaking of a rule. He says it's an, a personal affront to the engagement of God's glory. Sin is failing to match up to, to measure up with the glory that is the perfection of who God is and what it is that he is called to. Now the question is, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, we've already talked about it. 
In the confession of sin this morning, we got it from Romans chapter 1. Now I want to pause in that passage in Romans 1 and show you that falling short of the glory of God happens when we exchange the glory of God for earthly things. We exchange the glory of God for earthly things. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, idolatry, the self-centered impulse of the fallen heart is this. We exchange the glory of the immortal God... We exchange it for earthly things. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's an economic term. It's pretty simple. If you have 20 ducks and you want to go buy food, you exchange the $20 for food. If you don't do that, somebody's going to get mad. You're going to be stealing. Now, in this case, we have, as it were, the glory of the immortal God that's been made present to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been designed to live and to be satisfied in the glory of God alone, but oftentimes we're not. Oftentimes we turn away from the Creator unto the creature, and you know what we do? We take the glory of God and we cash it in for the glory of created things. We prize, as it were, the glory of created things over the creator God. We think that created things are going to give us what it is that will satisfy us. We think that the pumpkin bread's going to do it. We think that the new car is going to do it. We think that the new house is going to do it. We think that the new wife or the new husband is going to do it. And we brainstorm about created things with regards to our idolatry of them. And instead of running to Christ who will be our glory, our all-satisfying glory, we exchange it, we cash it in, and we try to get earthly things, and we try to, in some sense, satisfy a very, very hungry heart, and you know what begins to happen? More and more and more, we want more and more and more of the world. Our desires are for the world rather than for God, and He is not the perfect all-satisfying glory. Instead, we adopt a posture that pursues the finite the lesser, the fleeting glory. And consequently, we're unsatisfied. We do, at a fundamental level, every time you've sinned, this has happened. You've taken what should satisfy you, and you've turned it into an idolatrous thing, looking at the created world, and you've exchanged the glory of God. You've done an economic transaction. You feel it when you're tempted, don't you? Don't you get to yourself... Well, really, this is the right thing, and I know in the end this is what's really going to make me happy, and this is what's going to be joyful, and this is what's going to bring these Lord. But that really looks good. I really want that. And you can kind of feel yourself mortgaging the glory and giving it away for a quick fix and then going, wait, that didn't work. I'm not satisfied. After the fleeting pleasure is gone, you're not satisfied, and you begin to realize, oh, I exchanged the immortal glory of God for a fleeting glory. Now, a lot of times that glory of the created thing is not bad. It's out of order. It's out of order. Is pumpkin bread bad? The answer is no. It, it is not bad. Is God, has God created anything bad? No, the issue is not the thing. The issue is my heart. The issue is how I approach the thing. The thing is how I engage the thing. The thing is what I'm looking for from the thing. I'm looking for divine satisfaction from a created thing. And that's the very definition of idolatry. I've exchanged the glory of God 
for an earthly thing. You see, this is exactly what happened to Esau in Genesis chapter 25 when he mortgaged his birthright for a pot of red stew. You, you've read that passage in Genesis chapter 25, and haven't you, like me, gotten to the point where you just go, no, Esau, don't do that. Like, I know you're hungry, but listen, the birthright has a greater glory. It's more valuable. It carries, the, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means, it means heavy. It has more weight to it, more substance to it. Should you trade your inheritance because you're really hungry for a little bowl of stew? The answer is no. Because you will very soon finish that bowl of stew and go, why did I do that? Why did I do that? I just gave up something of much more substance and weight for something that had a lot less substance and weight. You're doing that every time you sin. Every time you're sin, that's what's happening. You're exchanging something that's more weighty, more satisfying for something that's less that you think will be heavier, but won't be. This is why St. Augustine wrote in, uh, in Confessions, These are thy gifts, they are good, for thou in thy goodness has made them. Nothing wrong with your gifts. Save for sin when we neglect the order. Neglect the order. We prize something above what we ought to. We fix our love on the creature instead of thee, the creator. Now here, if the heart of sin is fundamentally the prizing of creation over the creator, then the heart of righteousness by necessity is the reverse. It's prizing the creator over the creation. It's prizing the creator over the creation. It's wanting God's glory over all other forms of glory. Now, that's what we really want. That's the heart that we want. We're going to talk about how to get there in just a minute. That's what it means to live for the glory of God. It means at a fundamental level, you're prizing the glory of God above all other earthly things. But here's the second thing. It doesn't simply mean that. How do we live that out? Because maybe you're saying in the back of your mind, does that mean I shouldn't like anything else? Shouldn't treasure anything else? I shouldn't enjoy that pumpkin bread? Boy, that's coming up a lot in this sermon, isn't it? I must have really liked that pumpkin bread yesterday. That's not in my notes. It just keeps coming up, the pumpkin bread. How do we know when we're prizing God over creation? When this happens, we begin to prioritize God's glory in all of creation. The first position of our heart has to be to prize God's glory over all created things. But the second piece is we've got to prioritize God's glory in all created things. In all created things. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me pose you a question. If we love God and we desire supremely His glory, does that simply mean that anything that we enjoy in this world other than Him is sin? Some of us have this complex. We just feel guilty if we enjoyed something. What the Scripture actually teaches is, is that God has actually bestowed or entrusted His character, His glory, within the things that He has made. They reflect Him. And so it's not surprising that, that you are made, as it were, as I am made, with taste buds to enjoy the pumpkin bread. There it comes again. It's not surprising that he's designed the world with color. He didn't have to do that. Isn't it shocking to you that he gives to us sexual pleasure? It was his idea that you would enjoy it. He could have done it in a way that wasn't nearly as fun. But he didn't. 
He has actually designed humanity and the world in which humanity is in in order that we might relish and enjoy and take in the glory for which it has been created. And so it doesn't simply mean when we prize God's glory over everything that we can't enjoy anything else and if we do we're necessarily sinning. It means that we've got to take the glory of God that we prize and we've got to bring it into the things of the earth. We've got to prioritize God's glory when we relate to the things of this earth. Paul here is noticing when he says eat and drink in Corinth that the world is something that we can commend to each other in terms of its design. If Paul had said, if you prize God's glory more than anything else, you won't care what it is that you eat and drink. And that's not what he says. He says, when you eat and drink and whatever it is you do, do it to the glory of God. Meaning to say, when you engage with creation, prioritize the glory of God. Prioritize the glory of God. When you engage with drinking, prioritize the glory of God. When you engage with your husband or your wife, prioritize the glory of God. When you're raking those beautiful leaves and you're taking in the glory of creation, prioritize the glory of God in that thing. Don't substitute, don't exchange that thing. Don't think that that thing's going to give you a divine thing. Use that thing as a portal by which to get to God. You can relate to creation in such a way that you don't rob God of his glory. You can relate to creation in such a way that you reflect and radiate his glory. How do we do that? This means that we look at creation as an instrument, a means through which God's glory can be known. Now, there's a lot of things we could say on this point. And I wish we had a lot more time to be able to say them. We could say that means giving thanks for what it is that the Lord gives. Absolutely. The psalmist writes that when you give a sacrifice of praise, you glory in God. Have you noticed? I want you to just do your own heart test here. Have you noticed that when you pause and you're grateful and you're thankful for something, really? Not just mouthing the words, not just going through the motions, but you really pause and you just look over um, what it is that the Lord has given to you and you express thanksgiving. Have you found that there is joy that enters your heart? That is the delight of the glory of God. That's what that is. Thanksgiving is one of the portals to do that. Do you know one of the great ways to give thanks is to enjoy something that God has given within the parameters that God has given. And as you're enjoying it, just in, in your enjoying it, give absolute thanks, thanksgiving to God that he has provided this and he delights in your enjoyment of it. He absolutely loves it. He made it for you to love. So he loves it when you love it. That's a wonderful thing that we could spend a lot of time on with regards to the joy of the Lord and you enjoying the things that he's designed for you to enjoy. But that's not how Paul's using it here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he wants you to prioritize in the created order the gospel of grace. That's what he's talking about. We are to prize God's glory above all things. We are to prioritize God's glory in all things in order that we might proclaim God's glory over all things. That's what, it, that's what he's wanting us to do here. Because here, here's what's fascinating in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. How many times have you heard this passage preached or taught or read it yourself, and you go, oh, I love food, whether you eat or drink. 
who are of God. God wants me to love food. I just said a second ago that that is one thing in which God genuinely wants you to love. He made it for that very purpose. That's not Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do you know the problem in Corinth is that people are struggling in tension and division over whether they should eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. That's the issue. We say here at Cornerstone from time to time, context is king. You've got to let the passage, its surrounding history and cultural context and point of the book drive the meaning of verses. You can't just abstract them and cross-stitch them and put them on the wall. You've got to know them within the design in which they've been made. And this passage is designed to actually deal with a conflict. You know what the conflict was? Some, in their freedom in Christ knew that Christ had conquered all idols. And there is no power in idols. They don't exist. We just read that in Psalm 115. They have no power. Uh, they, they have lips, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have no power. Christ has triumphed over all idols in his resurrection and ascension. So when they go to the temple to buy meat, which is what you would have done in the first century, that was sacrificed to any number of the pantheon of gods, they said it doesn't matter if it was sacrificed to God. That God doesn't have any power, and Jesus Christ has triumphed over him. So I'm going to enjoy the meat, and I'm going to use it as the spoil of Jesus. That was their mindset. Others who likely had been going to that temple for a long time worshiping some of the pantheon of gods, who had a very sensitive conscience, who when they walked into that place, they had maybe years of memories of how they had engaged in idol worship, and now they're told that they have the freedom to go there and to buy the meat and do it for the glory of Jesus, but their consciences were very sensitive, and if they do it without faith, James tells us it is sin. And so as they go, they go, I can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And the others go, well, sure you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. You know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, let each do according to his conscience. And then he says, and here's how you ought to think about it. Because this is really the stuff of Christian community. I mean, this is what it comes down to, right? These are the big issues. Issues of liberty, issues of conscience. Can you go to this movie or not go to this movie? Can you wear that swimsuit or not wear that swimsuit? Can you do this or can you do that? Issues of liberty. This is what divides us. This is what gets us mad. This is the thing that gets us sideways with each other. That's what's happening in Corinth. This is their issue. This is their movie. This is their swimsuit. This is the meat sacrifice to idols thing. And he says, here's, what I, here's, here's how I want you to approach it. He says, as it concerns me, I have the freedom to eat meat, sacrificed to idols because of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his triumphing over them. But I desire not to cause any offense to my brother and my sister in the Lord with regards to food because I value, I weight people more than food. They're more valuable to me. They're more substantial to me. So if someone over here says, hey, I, I, I want to come to your house for dinner, but, but I have a, I'm a vegetarian, or, or pork bothers me. Or is it? I want some pork. I say out of love for you, pork or no pork, whether I eat or drink, whether I don't eat or drink, I want you to experience the love of Christ in relating to me so that you can glimpse his glory. I want you to see that food doesn't have a, doesn't have a hold on me. 
I want you to see that the things of this world don't have a hold on me. I can pick them up. I can put them down. I can do whatever is needed in the moment in order to make much of Jesus, in order to show love and the glory of the gospel. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in the next verse. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, but try to please everyone in everything that you do, not seeking your own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you prize the glory of God over all things and you prioritize the glory of God in all things, that when it comes to things, you're going to be totally free. You can use them for the glory of God. You cannot use them for the glory of God. And you know what it's going to take? It's going to consider whether or not those who you're in company with, what it is that they need to be able to see the glory of God. That means that sometimes you might eat meat sacrificed to idols. And that means sometimes you might not. And the glory of God is the manner and the means and the power through which you discern how that decision ought to be made. You're asking yourself this question. How might this decision bring the most glory to God and reveal his love for this person in whom I'm in relationship with? That's your fundamental question. That's your fundamental question. And so what happens is when we begin to prize the glory of God over all things and prioritize the glory of God in all things, we become free to be able to proclaim the glory of God's grace through all things. Through all things. We become absolutely, absolutely free to do that. And here's what actually begins to happen when you do that. Instead of exchanging the glory of God, instead of exchanging the glory of God for the glory of created things, you begin to prize the exchange of Jesus. When Jesus bought back the glory of God on the cross and in the resurrection. That's what you begin to prize. All of our lives, we have been squandering the glory of the immortal God in sin by thinking that we could find divine satisfaction in earthly things. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus had all the satisfaction of glory, and he laid it aside. And he actually took on human flesh in order that he might redeem us. Do you know what that is? It's an economic term. You know what it means? It means to simply buy back. He ransomed us. We had sold our souls, as it were, to the things of the world. But Jesus, when he came to pay the penalty for all of our squandering of his immortal glory and choosing the creation over the creator, he became creation so that he could bring us back to the creator. He became the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, John tells us in John 1.14. Jesus came to buy us back from the squandering of his glory that he might bring glory to God and he might bring salvation to men. He who knew no sin, Paul writes, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus did. 
When you begin to realize that that's the priority of all of the Christian message, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to say, whether it's sitting around the table or going to work or instructing your children or dealing with those who are suffering, you begin to constantly ask the question, how can I, might, how can I make known the buying back of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus? How can I see that the exchange that I've made has ruined the world, but the exchange that he's made is saving the world? That's what you're trying to do. That's the heart. That's the passion. And at that point, you can say, can I use this pumpkin bread for his glory? What would it be like to give thanks and enjoy it and then also use it as a portal by which to make him known? What would it be like to labor in such a way so that his glory is made known? So that we're saying in everything that we do that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's not a platitude that we recite on Sunday, but it's a reality that we live Monday through Saturday. That's what this text is telling us to. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that wonderful echo of praise gets down to eating and drinking. Gets down to the very basic necessities of life. Friends, if you begin to experience this and you know the difference. I experienced it yesterday because I was reflecting on this passage. Like like you, I presume, there are times where I'm asked or need to do things within my family that I do not want to do. This happens, you'll be very surprised, almost on a daily basis. (laughs) Hourly sometimes, it's remarkable. There are things I, I need to do that I don't want to do. And so I'm sitting there, I need to do something, and I don't want to do it. And I, I'm going to get mad about it. I, or I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it mad. And because, because I don't want to do it. And then I begin to think. What would it be like to bring God's glory into this? What would it be like to serve my wife and my children so that they might see the glory of God, that I might see the smile upon their face, that I might lighten their load, that they may experience the joy, that they might through me see the reflection and the radiance of God in the way that Jesus calls us to in Matthew chapter 5, that we would do good deeds and not glorify me, but glorify God who's in heaven. Because my family knows that if I do something good in a good spirit, it must be of God. And I got a feeling that's true of you too. And so pray for that spirit. Pray for that glory because that becomes the living witness of Jesus in and through all things. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we pray for your glory. We pray for your glory through the face of Jesus Christ. We pray for your glory through this gospel of grace. And we pray that it would get down to the eating and the drinking. We pray that it would get down to the washing of the dishes and the changing of the diapers. We pray that it would get down to the mowing of the lawn and the taking out of the trash. We pray, Lord, that it would get into the moment by moment second-by-second parts of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us by your grace what it means to live lively within a vision of this glory. Come now and move among us in that way and train us for a glory-giving and filled life towards you, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.